For those of y'all that don't know me, maybe online or somebody that's visiting, I'm, I'm Bobby Smith, and um, I'm the 10 o'clock teacher today. So um, today's Torah portion is Kai uh, Sarah, which is the uh, life of Sarah. So in sticking with the Torah, I'm going to do a presentation on the uh, Torah portion this morning. So let's all um, begin as we should it, with a word of prayer. Avinu Shabashimayam, our Father in heaven. Father, we come before you on your day in your house to draw nearer to you on your Shabbat, Father. Thank you for the knowledge of your Shabbat and the opportunity to honor your Shabbat, Father. Be with us this morning as we study your word. Touch us with your wisdom and with your, your guiding hand to help your word to guide us in our lives and all that we do. Open our hearts and our minds that we may be filled with your wisdom this day. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. All right, so Kai um, Sarah, which means the life of Sarah. Every week a Torah portion um, in the synagogue back in the day we, we, we don't do this here, but um, on Shabbat, when you would come to the worship on the synagogue and you had a Torah portion, the Torah portion would be broken down into eight sections. And the whole Torah portion would be read during the uh, service as well as the half Torah portion. So this week's Torah portion is broken down um, like this. Now this is... Um, from Rabbi Feinstein that puts together, uh, Jeffrey Feinstein, I want to say his name is, that puts together these, these books each, each week on the, um, the Torah portions. He actually has one for every one of the, the five books of Torah. And he, he broke it down like this. And this is the way that it would be broken down, um, not just by him, but by the, um, the rabbis that set up the way the Torah portion was, was divided. And one of the best ways now that we have of seeing this is in the complete Jewish Bible. Because when David Stern wrote or produced or, or um, formulated the complete Jewish Bible, he would actually enumerate in each Torah portion where these, these uh, portions are. So um, um, you can see this each week if you read a complete Jewish Bible. But today we, we begin with Sarah's sabbatical. Um, her rest in the land, the search for her successor. We're not going to study all this. It's just way too much to do in an hour. But that's basically how the uh, Torah portion would have been uh, broken out. So I came up with the best pictures I could of Sarah in searching online. Uh, we really don't know what Sarah looked like. There is no, no photograph of Sarah. So um, here... Here's, here, here, here are some, uh, some thoughts, you know, um, what, at least what, uh, what I was able to find on the Internet. So um, this Torah portion begins in chapter 23, verse 1. And it begins as Sarah's lifetime was 100 years, 20 years, and 7 years, the years of Sarah li Sarah's life. The Torah gives no other woman's age 
in, in all of the Torah. Here, Sarah's age is spelled out as 100 years, 20 years, which is a full life. In Genesis 6-3, the Lord laid out um, what a full life was going to be when he put a, um, I guess, a limit on life, when he, when he limited it to 120 years. And obviously there's people that have lived longer than 120 years. So it doesn't mean that if any of you are 120, I know nobody in here is 120, but um, if you ever get to that point, you know, it isn't over then. It's over when, when the Lord decides it's over. And, and it goes to seven years, which is a sabbatical year, cycle of years. In this way, the Torah distinguishes Sarah as the matriarch. She's the mother of those who believe in God. Rashi explains that the repetition of years divides Sarah's life into three periods, each with its own uniqueness, and each period shared with a particular characteristic of its neighbor. At 100, she was as sinless as a 20-year-old, for until the age of 20, a person does not suffer heavenly punishment. And at 20, she still had the wholesome beauty of a 7-year-old, who does not use cosmetics and whose beauty is natural. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein commented that a child's beauty is pure and is never used to tempt others to go astray. Part of Sarah's greatness was that despite her breathtaking beauty as an adult, all who saw her recognized her purity and innocence. Before speaking of Sarah's death, the Torah twice declares the life of Sarah. The verse mentions her death only once. Why does it mention the life of Sarah twice? The mystics, the mystics say that this is to remind us that even though she's died, Sarah lives on. People of faith anticipate a second life after the first life. We die only once, but we live twice. Although she sleeps in Hebron, Sarah, our mother, lives and will again live because she was a woman of faith. That is from Torah Club 5. Sarah and the Akedah. The narrative about Sarah's death follows almost immediately after the story of the binding of Isaac. The Torah interjects only a brief genealogy of Rebekah between the two events. Is there a connection between Isaac's binding and the death of Sarah? Jewish tradition says there is a cause and effect relationship between the death of Sarah and the binding of Isaac. According to legends, Sarah died from the shock that she heard when she heard that her husband had nearly sacrificed their son. Another version of the legend says that Satan, Hasatan, tried to stop the sacrifice of Isaac from happening because he wanted to thwart Abraham and Isaac from obeying the Lord. So he turned his attention to Sarah and told her the story and lied to her and gave the account that Isaac was indeed sacrificed. She cried out in grief and died. This would explain why Abraham and Isaac were not present at her death. These are legends. There's no definitive proof of this. Jewish legend says that Sarah died after she learned about how her son Isaac had been sacrificed. This corresponds well with the sequence of events in first century Judea. Not long after the death of our master, Yeshua, the holy city of Jerusalem and the temple within it fell to the Romans. The Torah hints toward the disaster by telling us the story of Sarah's death right after 
relating the binding of Isaac. The deeds of the forefathers portent the deeds of the sons. In addition, the Torah records the birth of Rebekah before the death of Sarah in line with the tradition that a righteous person is not taken from the world until his or her successor has been born, as implied by the verse in Ecclesiastes 1.5 that says, the sun rises and the sun sets. Sarah died in Kirath, I can't, I can't even pronounce this anymore, Kirath Arba, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to eulogize Sarah and to bewail her. Genesis 23.2. The Parsha shows Jewish respect for the dead and concern for the future. These are essential elements in the concept of Judaism. For neither for we neither reject what is gone before nor neglect what lies ahead. The narrative begins with the death of Sarah and Abraham's intense desire to give her a proper burial in a place worthy of her greatness. Did that work? In Judaism, they have this um, process known as sitting Shiva. Jewish tradition extorts us to properly mourn the passing of a loved one and sets the practices and rituals that facilitate and give expression to our feelings of loss and grief. At the same time, however, it establishes a sequence of time frames through which the intensity of our mourning that is observed in the hours after death to the seven-day Shiva observed following the burial to this 30-day Shoshim period and so on. Mourning is a show of respect for the departed to his or her place in our lives. In other words, we must mourn, but we must also set boundaries to our mourning. To not mourn at all, or to plunge into an abyss of grief and remain trapped in its bottom, both of these extremes are detrimental, both to the living and to the soul of the departed. Mourning is a show of respect to the departed and to his or her place in our lives, as well as a crucial stage in the healing of those who experience the loss. But the soul of the departed does not desire that those remaining in this world remain paralyzed by grief. On the contrary, the soul's greatest benefit comes from its loved one's return to active, even joyous life, in which their feelings of love translate into deeds that honor the departed soul and attest to its continuing influence in our world. When somebody passes away, they live on in our minds, in our memories, in our experiences. Um, and they live real. I mean, I've, I'm dealing, dealing with the loss of my mom from this, um, this year, and, and I think of that all the time, and then that brings up the loss of my dad, you know, and, and it's, it's, they're, they're real. They're, they're, in, they're in your mind when, when, you, when you lose loved ones. These are the phases of mourning in uh, Judaism. Aninut. It's the time of the moment of death until the conclusion of the funeral. There are experiences of shock, numbness, anger, denial, and disbelief. Avilut, which is for the seven relatives of a deceased, the mother, the father, the spouse, the sister, the brother, the son, and the daughter. 
They have seven days of sitting Shiva beginning at the conclusion of the funeral. The first three days are intense mourning followed by four days of mourning and reflection. They sit at home. Now, they don't sit the whole time, but they are at home, and they say Kaddish at prayer services conducted in the home. They receive consolers. They don't work, and men don't shave. Experiences are sadness and relief, melancholy, comfort, happiness when recalling fond memories of the deceased. Then there's a period called Sheloshim, which is for the seven relatives. It's a time at the end of the, the, the Shiva through the 30 days from the day of burial. People return to work. They say the Kaddishat prayer in services in the synagogue. They don't do a lot of entertainment or, or um, they really think a lot at their, during that period of time. And, and again, men do, don't shave. So I would say after 30 days, a beard's probably grown. Experiences of loneliness, busyness, and waves of sadness are part of what you feel during this time. Then the next phase is a, is a phase of uh, Shana, which is 11 months for parents. It's the time of the day of burial through the first 11 months. They say Kaddish prayers at services in the synagogue, and they unveil the gravestone during that period of time. The next stage is a stage called Yaritz, which is the anniversary of the day of the death. Kaddishit prayers in the service, have, they have a Kaddishat prayer service in the synagogue, and they light a memorial candle, and they also give zedakah. Always giving zedakah, charity, and memory of the one that's, that's, that's not with you anymore. And they express sadness, obviously, for the memory of the loss. The last phase is called Yitzkor, which is for the seven relatives. This happens on the feast that follow the death. Yom Kippur, Shemin Ezret, the, the last day of Passover, the second day of Shavuot, the second day of Sukkot, Rosh Hashanah, and in some um, communities, the second day of Passover, uh, as well as the last day of Passover. They do this, basically the same thing, a Kaddishat prayer service in the synagogue, and they light a memorial candle, and they give zedakah. The world was created with humanity as its focus. This took a full cycle of time, which is seven days. When creation is reversed and the human soul returns to its source, that too is marked with a weak cycle. The Shiva, seven days, which, is, which the closest relatives devote exclusively to the mourning of the soul's departure, and the extended family and friends and community comfort them with their presence, their empathy, and their words of consolation. The traditional words spoken to the mourner during Shiva are, May God console you together with all mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. In a letter to a father who lost his young child, the Luvictor Rebbe writes, at first glance, the connection between the mourner to whom these words are directed and the mourner of Jerusalem's, I'm sorry, I hit the wrong thing here. We'll start over. At first glance, the connection between the mourner to whom these words are directed and the mourner of Jerusalem's destruction appear to be quite puzzling. In truth, however, they are connected. For the main consolation embodied by this phase, by this phrase, is its inner content. Namely, that just as the grief over Zion and Jerusalem is common to all the sons and daughters of our people, Israel, wherever they may be, so is the grief to a single individual Jewish 
person or Jewish family shared by the entire nation. For as the sages have taught, all the Jewish people comprise one integral, in, integral organism. A second point. Just as God will most certainly rebuild the ruins of Zion and Jerusalem and gather the dispersed of Israel from the ends of the earth through our righteous Mashiach, so will he, without a doubt, remove the grief of the individual, fulfilling the promise embodied in the verse, Awaken and sing, you who repose in the dust. Great will be the joy, the true joy, when all will be rejoined at the time of the resurrection of the dead, when our Messiah returns. This is um, a lot of Hebrew terms for, um, for that time, for death, and, and, and a lot of the, um, the concepts. Petraeus passing, all these different things. The one, one thing I wanted to focus on was evilut, which is the word for mourning. Um, obviously, at Shiva and, and some of the things that I covered are... Um, or in that uh, little description, or those different terms that I, that I found on the internet. So, did, so why didn't Abraham do the easy, less expensive thing, which was cremation, cremation with Sarah? Burning the dead was not uncommon in the pagan cultures of the time. Abraham shows us that the manner in which we bury the dead speaks volumes about what we believe re regarding God, and especially his place as creator and redeemer. Abraham knew God. He walked before him blamelessly. He therefore had come to accept the truth that God had created mankind in his image and that his image was somehow mysteriously present in both the material and immaterial parts of man. The body, wonderfully fashioned, is the very height of God's creative efforts, outshining, outshining all the rest of his magnificent work. Here within the intricate weaving together the human body, the act of creation continues. For it is through the handiwork of God that the oneness of man and wife becomes evident in the birth of the child. Here within the body is the best evidence for the deep concepts of ruach, which is spirit, nephesh, which is soul, and kaya, which is life. Here would be the very symbol of Kihilah, which is congregation of Yeshua, who would be portrayed as the head with his followers being the body. He would be the supreme example of God's creative ability, which would baffle mankind throughout his history and present him a subject for arts and sciences, sciences as nothing else. Here in short would exist the fingerprint of God so evident in the world that man could never ultimately deny the obvious existence of an all-wise and all-knowing God. For only such a one, Echad, could have created and fashioned such a thing of utter beauty and wonder. As the psalmist declared, I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That's one thing that we've never done. I mean, we've made robots, we've made different things, but man can never, can never make the body. It's, it's a creation of God. To carefully return the body to the ground from which it had originally come was to give back to God that which was rightfully his and to allow his creative order to fulfill its role in returning the body to dust. To have laid such a masterpiece 
of God's hand in a fire was simply unthinkable to Abraham as it should be to us. Remember, God himself buried Moses in Deuteronomy 34, 5 through 6. So, let me go here. This is um, a painting of the cave of Machpelah. Abraham rose up from the presence of his dead and spoke to the children of Heth, saying, I am an alien and a resident among you. Grant me an estate for a burial site with you, that I may bury my dead before me. To acquire a fitting burial plot, he was forced to negotiate the trans with the transparently greedy Ephron and gladly pay an exorbitant price. Go to this, because this is another um, slide of the cave of Machpelah. Some of the some interesting things I pulled up. Just how exorbitant a price was this? In the Torah, we're told it was 400 silver shekels. So that doesn't mean a lot to us, right? I mean, what is 400 silver, silver shekels? This was in uh, Samuel 24, 24. But the king, King David, told Aranach, No, I shall purchase it from you for a price, and I shall not offer up to Hashem, my God, free elevation offerings. So David bought the threshing floor and the cattle for 50 shekels. That was the location of the temple. So the cave of Machpelah cost eight times what the location of the temple cost. The word matching Machpelah means double. The cave was so called either because it contained two chambers, an upper and a lower level, or on the account of the couples who were to be buried there. That was from Rashi. As the Midrash states, this is one of three places where scripture attests to the Hebrews incontestable possession of the Holy Land. For the cave of Machpelah, the temple, and the tomb of Joseph were all purchased without bargaining and paid with unquestionable legal tender. They paid the asking price. Here in the eternal words of Torah is a written decree of land ownership. And since there is no record of any of Abraham's descendants ever selling this parcel or any of the other two parcels, we may say categorically that it still remains the property of the family of God. The descendants of Abraham. As we know today, these sites continue to be contested, and Jewish worshipers have at times been banned from the sites. And afterwards, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, facing Mamre, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Thus, the field with its cave was confirmed as, Abraham, as Abraham's as an estate for a burial site for the children of Heth was confirmed from, as an estate from the burial site from the children of Heth. Jewish burials are done as quickly as possible in a simple pine casket without embalming the body. The body is to decay naturally and to naturally prepare it for its resurrection. It is a simple affair 
and focuses on the life of the individual and all the wonderful gifts the person's life bestowed upon those who were touched by that life. We are given a glimpse of that in this week's Torah portion. Now, Abraham was old, well on in years, and Hashem had blessed Abraham with everything. And Abraham said to his servant, the elder of his house, household, who controls all that is his, Place now your hand under my thigh, and I will have you swear by Hashem, God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife from my son, from my daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwelt. Rather, to my land and to my kindred shall you go, and take a wife for my son Isaac. Genesis 24, 1-4. Abraham looked ahead and turned to the responsibility of finding a proper wife for Isaac. There is so much in this short passage. People, when they study this, focus on the hand under the thigh and the culture of the time and what that means and spend a lot of time dissecting those words. You tend to question, why not look for a wife among the Canaanites? As we know, Abraham's family were not believers of the God of Abraham, which is why Abraham left them in the first place. So why not find a wife among the Canaanites? And what about swearing an oath? Are we not taught specifically by Yeshua not to swear or enter into oaths? What about the marriage of a believer to an unbeliever? Does that not pose an issue? Abraham's own productive life was coming to an end. Isaac was 37 years old when Sarah died, and Abraham was troubled by the thought that Isaac would have no children to succeed him. Therefore, Abraham now took it upon himself to provide for the future by finding a wife for Isaac. Isaac's mate could not just be any woman. Isaac's wife had to be a worthy successor to his mother. She had to be the next Sarah of the Jewish people, a woman who would not only be a wife and a mother, but a matriarch. More than a trusted servant, Eliezer was the Rosh Hashiva of Abraham's household. He's the one who taught the disciples and exemplified Abraham's way of life. Only such a person had the stature and the understanding to be worthy of the heavenly assistance needed to chart the next epoch in the development of the Jewish people. God had given Abraham everything, riches, possessions, honor, longevity, and children. The one thing he lacked to see was his son have children to inherit his success and honor. Despite these blessings, many other blessings that God had promised to Abraham had not yet fulfilled. The Lord promised Abraham to make Abraham's name great, to multiply his descendants like the, star of heaven, the stars of heaven, and to bless all nations in his seed. Abraham had not yet seen those promised blessings come to pass. Nevertheless, the Torah says, the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. This teaches that one state of blessedness does not depend on current circumstances. A person of faith may rest confident in blessing that is yet to be revealed or realized. This is, this is certainly true of believers in Messiah. The rejection of the Canaanites could not have been based on their idol worship because Abraham's family worshipped idols as well. Rather, Abraham was motivated, motivated by the moral degeneracy of the Canaanites. Idolatry is an intellectual perversion, and as such, it can be remedied. 
but a lack of morality, ethics, and modesty affects an imperson, a person's entire nature and disqualifies a woman from being the maid of Isaac. Another thought is that Abraham rejected intermarriage with the Canaanites because Abraham knew that God had doomed the Canaanites. How could God drive the Canaanites from the land of Abraham's seed if, the Abra if Abraham's seed were descendants themselves of the Canaanites? I used to tell my children when I taught Sunday school and the teens that I taught here in the uh, synagogue to make sure when you're choosing a mate to pay attention to, to a couple of things. In the case of a son, look at the mother of the woman you're wanting to marry. More than likely, that's your wife in 20 to 30 years. <laughs> Same goes for the daughter. Choosing a husband. Look at the f father of the man you're wanting to marry. That's what your husband's going to be in 20 to 30 years. And also, pay close attention to the family. Because you're not just marrying a person, you're marrying a family. <laughs> in, Ezra, in Ezra 10, Ezra the scribe rebukes the men of Judah for marrying foreign wives. He makes them divorce the women, and he forces them to send their wives away along with the children begotten from the forbidden union. Traditional Judaism, very much so. Interprets, interprets this to mean that the children of Jewish men and non-Jewish women are not considered Jewish. Moreover, the incident in Ezra 10 indicates that Jews should not marry Gentiles at all unless they have undergone a legal conversion to become Jewish. Non-Jews can marry into the Jewish people so long as they are willing to become Jewish. For example, Tamar, Rahab, did I say that right? Rahab. Rahab and Ruth all women mentioned in Matthew's genealogy of King David and Yeshua were not Jewish, but all three women accepted the Jewish faith and married Israelite men. Why were the foreign women of Ezra 10 rejected when Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth were accepted? The women of Ezra sent away were Canaanites. The Torah expressly forbids marriages between Jewish people and Canaanites. By the days of the master, by the days of, of the time of Yeshua, in the Second Temple era, the original Canaanite people groups had vanished. Therefore, Judaism permits a Jewish person to marry a Gentile, so long as the Gentile has made a legal conversion to become Jewish. What can we learn from this? We should always be careful in choosing our spouses. Being unequally yoked is a recipe for disaster and is extremely difficult to overcome. Believers would be wise to marry believers. You can list for yourselves the many reasons for this. Children are better served when parents are of the same belief and marriages have a much greater chance of long-term success. Now, does this mean that if you are unequally yoked, you should look to change that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Marriage is a covenant. Covenants are forever. And we should do everything in our power to make marriages work. God is a God of life and covenant. Children deserve united homes. While it is certainly true that some marriages just don't work, we should always make divorce the very last option. And this is, is a teaching in this week's Torah portion and the wisdom that it gives those of us who have not yet 
made a choice of a spouse. Eliezer's challenge. The servant said, I've hit this thing here over here with my finger and messed this up. Um, the servant said, perhaps the woman shall not wish to follow me to this land. Shall I take your son back to the land from which he departed? And Abraham answered him, beware not to return my son there. That's in Genesis uh, 24.5. Isaac was the only one of the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to have never left the promised land. Abraham refused to let him leave because he would not let Isaac lose the special sanctity with which, had, which, with which he had been invested. When he was brought as an offering completely devoted to God, thus he emphasized that Isaac was on no account to leave the land that God had promised to his descendants. While refusing this permission, Abraham assured Eliezer that God would bless his mission with success. Isaac could not leave the land of Canaan because Abraham offered him as a sacrifice. The Torah forbids making a sacrifice outside the land of Israel. The Torah also forbids taking a sacrifice once consecrated by the altar outside the sanctuary. Isaac's life after the Akedah was of a different order than any other. He was a living sacrifice, sanctified and spiritual. For that reason, he was forbidden to leave the Holy Land. Eliezer was not interested in a wealthy girl for Isaac. He preferred somewhat of modest means, the kind who would go draw water for herself, not have servants to do it for her. Eliezer knew where to find that woman. When he arrived at Nahar's city of Aram, he went directly to the well outside the city and waited for the girls to arrive. In the ancient world, women attended to most of the heavy lifting, such as the artist's task of carrying water home from the city well. Romantic encounters with biblical women occur at wells. Eliezer would not even be influenced by miracles, only by the character of the girl. Eliezer wanted to see how the girl would behave away from her home atmosphere so that he could have a better perspective on her character. For at the well, the girl would be natural and act in accordance with her own character. Eliezer, a non-Jew, who, having come to faith in Abraham's God, was now entrusted with an awesome task. Here, the covenant bond between Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, and Eliezer, a Gentile, foreshadows the eventual ingathering of the Gentiles and the essential role they will play in, covenant, in the covenant itself. Only Israel and those who would be brought into her through participation in the covenant through faith would receive Hashem's covenant blessings. What is more, the descendants of Jacob would ultimately be identified as Israel through her own participation in the covenant. Apart from covenant participation, there are no blessings from Hashem. Indeed, the promise is entirely wrapped up in the covenant. For the covenant as a whole finds its completion in Messiah Yeshua. By what means does an individual receive the eternal blessings of the covenant? By exercising the same faith which Abraham himself had. Our faith is in Messiah. Faith in Yeshua. Genuine faith in Yeshua cannot be separated from covenant or the covenant membership in Abraham's covenant. In fact, 
It was for this very reason that Paul could teach in Romans 4 that Abraham was the father of all who believed. Like his illustration of the olive tree in Romans 11, there is only one established fountain of God's blessing, and that is the covenant which all believers, whether from the offspring of Jacob or from the nations, are brought. It is in this context that true unity or oneness between a Jew and non-Jew exists. For we are all one in Yeshua, in whom the covenant finds its ultimate fulfillment. The main characters of this story demonstrate a key characteristic of the saving faith in the God of Abraham, namely, the willingness to live in accordance with God's leading. The single phrase that summarizes the overall perspective of true faith is that a person should live according to the will of God. But how one discerns the will of God in each area of life becomes a major challenge. Here we come face to face with, face with two major and different approaches. One we may describe as objective, the other as subjective. Whether one choose, whichever one chooses will change the entire scope of how he or she approaches relationship with God. The objective approach is simply that God leads his children through revelations given to his chosen prophets, culminating in the written scriptures. While the subjective viewpoint waits for the personal revelation given to each individual at each decisive juncture. Eleazar is clearly of the objective for he acts upon the commands given to him by Abraham. Yet the subjective reality of the will of God in guiding the child of God in life's decisions are also evident. While I was on the road, Hashem guided me, he says in verse 27. Thus, as illustrated by this story, the choice is not an either-or, but a both-and, God's will, revealed to his prophets and apostles, and eventually written down as inspired scripture, forms the touchstone against which the individual leading of the Spirit is tested. The text gives us a clear picture of Eleazar's fears in terms of the whole mission he was sent to accomplish. What happens if the girl doesn't return with me? How will I know which girl is the right one? Can you just imagine being put to such a task? This is a job which allows for no mistakes. Yet the trusted servant acted in the same faithfulness he had seen demonstrated by Abraham time and again, sets out on the trip, awaiting God's di direct leading things for which he lacked knowledge and or ability. That's from Tim Haig. And he said, Whose daughter are you? Pray tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And, he, and she said to him, even straw and feed are plentiful with us, as well as a place to lodge. So the man bowed low, prostrated himself to Hashem. He said, Blessed is Hashem, God of my master Abraham, who has not withheld his kindness and truth from my master, as for me, Hashem has guided me on the way to the house of my master's brothers. Genesis 24, 23-27. One more lesson can be learned from the example of Eleazar. He is in constant communion with God as he travels to complete the assigned task. Because Eleazar trusted that God would lead him as he humbly sought to accomplish the task Abraham had given him, he was always in a listening mode as he traveled. 
when we, when we feel God is not leading us in our lives, it may well be that we've stopped listening or we don't like the direction in which he is leading us. Sometimes we don't hear the leading of God because the drone of the world has become too loud. He is leading us as he promised. The question is, were we willing to listen? Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran to the man outside the spring, Genesis 24:29. This is the same Laban that Rebekah will send Jacob to as he's fleeing Esau. Now Isaac came from having gone to Beer Laroi, for he d dwelt in the south country. Isaac went out to supplicate in the field towards the evening, and he raised his eyes and saw, Behold, camels were coming, and Rebekah raised her eyes and saw Isaac. She inclined while on the camel, and she said to her servant, Who is that man walking in the field toward us? And the servant said, He is my master. She then took the veil and covered herself. The servant told Isaac all the things he had done, and Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah his mother, and he married Rebekah. She became his wife, and he loved her. And thus Isaac consoled after his, was consoled after his mother. A traditional Jewish wedding is a tapestry woven for many threads. Biblical, historical, mystical, cultural, and legal. Threads carried from one generation to the next forming a chain of Jewish continuity which goes back more than 3,800 years. On the cosmic level, our sages teach that each marriage ceremony is a reenactment of the marriage between God and the Jewish people which took place at Mount Sinai, and that the wedding day is a personal Yom Kippur, the holiest and most auspicious day of one's life. But a marriage is also an intricate legal transaction by which a bride and a groom enter into a mutually binding commitment. The rituals and customs of a Jewish wedding derived from both its legalistic particulars and its underlying spiritual themes, the body and soul of the Jewish wedding. These are the most common Jewish wedding traditions that you, you may include in your special day from um, uh, my Jewish learning center. Eufruf, which is on the Shabbat, Sabbath day prior to the wedding, a Jewish couple may partake in a uh, aruf, I can't even say it, arufuf, which means calling up in Yiddish. At this ceremony, either the groom or the couple come together and are called to recite Aliyah. They'll come to Aliyah in, in their synagogue. Fasting, depending on the Jewish community to which they belong, some Jewish couples fast on the day of their wedding. Head coverings. At a Jewish wedding ceremony, male guests, Jewish or not, maybe they're getting ready to eat a lot at the end of their service. I mean, you know. At a Jewish wedding ceremony, male guests, Jewish or not, cover their heads with a, they call it a skull cap, but it's called a kippah. Uh, separate seating at Orthodox Jewish weddings, men and women may be required to sit separately. Um, Bekadine, in most Orthodox communities, a Bekadine ceremony takes place before the wedding. Before the Bekadine, the bride and the groom are separated. The groom and his male friends and relatives make a joyful procession to the bride who sits on the throne surrounded by female loved ones. A ketubah, and I'll get to that toward the end. The hoopah, 
Obviously, we know about the hoopah for the children. There's always a hoopah in the wedding. If you notice in this picture, they're getting married under a hoopah. And those of y'all that went to uh, the wedding of Tyler and Jamal, 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 okay. Jamal, that, they did that under a hoopah. That was really neat. And the processional. In a Jewish wedding, the processional is a bit different than the one you see in a Christian ceremony. After the rabbi and the bride's grandparents and the groom's grandparents were escorted down the aisle, followed by the groomsman and the best man, the groom is then escorted by his parents down the aisle, followed by the bridesmaids and the maid of honor. The bride is then escorted by both of her parents down the aisle. Circling, known as hakafut, which is the tradition of the bride circling the groom, is common at many Jewish weddings. Uh, sheva brakut, the sheva brakot are seven blessings that are recited by the rabbi during the wedding ceremony. Prayer shawl, a tallit, are worn by, by, the, uh, by, the, by the groom a lot of times. Breaking of the glass. During the final moments of the wedding ceremony, the groom breaks a glass, usually wrapped in a cloth napkin or bag to avoid injury, injury with his right foot. The couple will then usually kiss and the guests shout, Mazel Tov, meaning congratulations. Yikud, which, which refers to seclusion, which takes place immediately after the wedding. According to Jewish tradition, the newlyweds are secluded from their guests for a period of time after the ceremony. At what, one time, this was to consummate the marriage, but nowadays, it's just to enjoy some quiet time before greeting their loved ones. So, Isaac took Rebekah into Sarah's tent. Why did Isaac take his new bride into the tent of his mother? In the nomad culture of the day, this might have symbolically indicated that Rebekah had become the new matriarch over Abraham's household. It demonstrated that Rebekah had stepped into Sarah's role. Until Rebekah came, Isaac mourned over the loss of his mother. Rebekah's arrival consoled him because she was worthy to carry on Sarah's legacy. According to the Midrash, when Isaac brought her into her mother's tent, the cloud of glory returned, the Sabbath light rekindled, and it stayed lit all week. The blessing returned to the bread, dough, and the curtains again opened wide to receive visitors. Abraham proceeded and took a wife whose name was Keturah. Before, before I do that, I'm going to do this. This is, a, this is a, an example of a couple of ketubas. That is a contract that you sign at a Jewish wedding. There's two different columns there, one on the left, one on the right. The, um, the bride would sign one side, and the bride's family would sign one side, and the groom's bride and family would sign the other side. So the Jewish people had been doing prenups for a long time. And this is, this, this is how serious they take marriage, right? So that make sure that marriage is, is forever. So Abraham proceeded and took a wife whose name was Keturah, Genesis 25.1. As is customary in the Torah, when a person's role in the development of the narrative is completed, his life is summed up, even though he may have lived for many more years. Once Abraham, at the age of 140, had arranged for the marriage of Isaac, the destiny of the, of the Jewish people moved on to the next generation. Even though Abraham lived to the age of 175, 
the Torah now summarizes the rest of Abraham's life, saying merely that he remarried, provided for his children by his second wife, and then was laid to rest by Isaac and Ishmael. Then, since Ishmael has no part in the ongoing story of Israel, the Torah merely lists Ishmael's offspring and goes on to the story of Isaac. All of this is yet another illustration of the maxim that the Torah is not a history book. If it were, there would surely be many more events of interest that might be recorded. But since it is a story of the development of God's chosen people, any events not related to this primary theme are just irrelevant. So as we read the Torah and as we try to fill in lines of all the different things, you know, it's just not meant for us to, I mean, the story is God's message to us. He's, he's, he is um, revealing himself to us in his word. He needed a way to reveal his word to the world. So he reveals his word to the world through his people. That's how words are communicated, through people, right? So the Jewish people had this awesome responsibility. Well, we today, here at Beth Adonai, or wherever you are as a believer, have that same um, job, that same responsibility to spread this word and to give this word. That's what keeps it alive from generation to generation. So I pray that, um, that we, will, we will continue to do that. We do a lot of studying here. We do, I, I really enjoy the fact that we dig into scripture. We look at scripture, scripture for what it is and we don't try to read into it what it's not. So um, um, that's where I'm going to end today. Next week I'm going to be doing uh, uh, Todot, which is a Torah portion of Generations next week. So um, hopefully you can, can be here for that. And uh, let, let me close with a, uh, with a prayer. Alvinu Malkenu, our Father, our King. Father, thank you for this great morning, for this glorious morning, for this fall day, for these changes of seasons which show your pattern for this world, Father. Thank you for the opportunity to gather on your Shabbat, to worship you, to draw near to you. Be with each of us today as we go through this service and as we leave here and we go home, protect us, Father. And be with us this week as we interact with others. Father, I pray that all the people that we interact with see you in us in all that we do, that we follow your commandments, that we show all around us that we are your children, and we represent you well. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.